The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, thank you, Kenny. And good evening, everybody. Well, if you'll grab your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. We'll read that passage, and then we'll pray. And it reads, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood it, the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for allowing us this privilege to be able to gather together and to hear your word. I thank you for the weighty but honorable privilege to be able to teach your word, Father. And I pray, Father, that um, you will prepare your servant to proclaim your word, that you will protect me from me, and that you will help me to proclaim your word accurately, and that you would open all of our eyes and help us to behold the wondrous things out of your law. And also, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you because your word is a a means to an end. And the end is to love you, glorify you, serve you, and draw near to you. So I pray, Father, that as we prepare to do that, Lord, you would be honored above all things. And I ask these things humbly. In Christ's name, amen. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. What I want to do first is I want to set the context of this passage so that we can understand where we're going, and then I want to give you some reasons why I think the topic that we're going to study is going to benefit all of us. So the first thing we want to do is we want to figure out what's going on here. Why is Paul writing this? Well, in this passage, we see some profound truths that are communicated about prayer. Paul teaches us that that prayer is not only necessary, it is a necessary biblical response to God's grace. And apparently, um, Paul is writing because Epaphras, the pastor and planter of the Colossian church, which you can read about in chapter 1, verse 7, he discerns that there's some kind of a doctrinal problem that's going on in Colossae. The church seems to be thriving. The church seems to be maturing. The gospel seems to be um, being very fruitful in that area. But as we all know, just because a church is fruitful does not mean that there aren't external threats. So Epaphras sees this uh, external threat, and he heads to Rome. Um, Most scholars think that this book was written when Paul was in prison in Rome. 
So he goes to Rome, and he, and he talks to Paul. He tells Paul what's going on, and not only Paul, but Timothy. And as a result, Paul says, as he always does, let me write a letter. So he writes this letter, and the, the, the profound thing about this letter is Paul doesn't just begin with the problem. He begins with what God is doing, not what seems to be going on outside the church, but what God is actually doing in the church. He begins with a, a thankful heart. But Epaphras travels to Rome, and he tells Paul about the health of the church. He tells Paul about the threats of uh, false gospel, false doctrine, false Christology. All of these things are going on. And, and Paul responds by writing this letter. He doesn't begin with a polemic. He begins with a prayer. And Paul starts by offering this prayer of thanksgiving to God in celebration of his saving grace in the life of the Colossian church. And you can see that in the verses that we just read. This letter was, was delivered, again, um, to the Colossians from Rome by Tychicus and Onesimus. And it was read in both the Colossian church and the church at Laodicea. And the themes of prayer and thanksgiving, that's what we want to focus on tonight. We're going to deal with all, all of the verses that we've read, but we're really going to study this thematically because I think it, it would best benefit us if we study the, the themes specifically that Paul is teaching on, which are the themes of prayer and thanksgiving. Now, Jaquan, why are we going to learn that? Well, I got four reasons for you. The first reason is, is because we as a church, we, we, we have this desire and conviction that we want to be people who live Quorum Deo. If you have that blue notebook with the silver writing going on it, you know what I'm talking about. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, Quorum Deo is, is, is this commitment or desire to always live before God, to always be constantly living with, with, with an awareness that God is watching. And as a result, we want to be people who want to glorify God. We want to be people who want to love God. And we want to be people who want to serve him well in all areas of our lives because we know that he's a transcendent being. And as we say here at Capitol, we want to be people awakened to a holy God. And what better way to do that than to be people of prayer and to be people who are thankful? And we see even, even in Colossians, we see that Paul desires that for Christians. If you look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, and Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, uh, Paul says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is, giving thanks to the Father through him. There it is, continue, continuing steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Like Paul continues to state that theme of prayer and thanksgiving all through different uh, New Testament letters as we will see. So that first reason is I think this will better help us to live out that desire to, to live quorum day or, or to constantly live before God. That's what it's going to help us to do because that's what we desire to do as a church. And the second reason is I think that this will help us to overcome excuses that, that hinder prayer. Because we can always think of a reason not to pray, but as much as we can think of a reason not to pray, there's many other reasons that we should pray. So, so we, we, we can fall on either side of that spectrum. We're looking for reasons not to or we're identifying reasons to pray. So we want to be a prayerful people. And I say that because God is always good to us. Therefore, we always have reason to express thankfulness to him. Look with me at Psalm 45, verse 9. That's Psalm 45, verse 9. And it reads, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. That's believer and, and unbeliever. That's everything in creation. God is always good, so we never really have a reason not to go before God and at least thank him. 
At minimum, we can go before God and say, Lord, I thank you. Even though we might not have what we wish we had, we can always go before God for what we do have because somebody's always going through something worse than we are, and we always have reason to thank God for at least something in our lives. And then the third reason is we need to be reminded of how to approach God in prayer. In Psalm 100, verse 4, it tells us how to do that. It says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and enter into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. That those are commands. Th those are things that Christians must do. We, we, we must approach God in a th with a thankful tone. We must approach him to celebrate who he is, and we must continue, continue to thank him. Like, we don't want to be spiritual spoiled brats. We want to go before God and thank him for what he's already done. We don't just want to go before God. God, can you do this? Can you do this? God is not a genie in a bottle. He's, he's a deity that wants to be celebrated. He wants to be acknowledged, and he wants to be loved. Not, like, we want to send our request to God, but we don't want to just, just do that. We want to thank him for what he's already doing. And then the third reason is, well, the fourth reason is to be reminded how to pray in accordance with God's nature. We must pray in accordance with who God is, not who we want God to be, not who we wish God to be, but who he has revealed himself to be in Scripture. And 1 Chronicles 16.34 really gives us a rooting and an understanding um, of this necessity. It says in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 34, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You can also um, read that as because, where it says for, that can also be read as because. We give thanks to the Lord because he is good, because his steadfast love endures forever. So we, we never have a reason to say God is not good. We might have misunderstandings of situations, and we might not be able to fully see the goodness of God in the immediate, but in the ultimate sense, God is always good. Scripture declares that he is always good. Nobody on planet Earth can say God is not good. And at minimum, we can go before God and say, Lord, you are good. If we can't pray anything else, we can always pray, Lord, you are good. And in his commentary on Colossians, New Testament scholar David Paul writes, quote, In Paul, thanksgiving is always directed towards God, in line with the Old Testament heritage that it, um, that it is an act of praise and confession when the mighty acts of God among his people are remembered. It is proper, therefore, for Paul to offer such thank, th um, thanks to God when he prays for the Colossians. So the idea there is Paul didn't just pull thanksgivings out of thin air. He didn't just start doing that when he writes these letters. Paul being thankful and, and always saying that he mentions people in his prayers, that was really part of his identity. It was part of his identity as a Jew, and it was even more part of his identity when, when he became a Christian and God called him to be an apostle. Like certain things carried over. All, all that education that he had, him sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, him um, learning all that Old Testament and all that Old Testament theology, he carried that over into the New Testament. And, and what I want to do here is I want to show you all from the Old Testament where we see this idea of thanksgiving and how it carries over into the New Testament. For example, if you look at Psalm 35:18, you see it. It says in Psalm 35:18, I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. So you see this idea of thanking God and praising God are pretty much synonymous with one another. Because it's, it's an idea of looking back on what God has done and celebrating him. And then Psalm 104, enter into his gates with thanksgiving 
enter into his courts with praise, give thanks to him, bless his name. You see this idea of thanksgiving, praise, celebrating God's name, looking back on what he has done. In Psalm 109, verse 30, it says, with my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throne. So you see it in the Psalms. But even outside of um, those Psalms, you see it in other places. For example, Kenny preached on Exodus um, 14. So we're going to team up, and, I, and I'm getting ready to quote Exodus 15. All right, so basically in Exodus 15, what you see in Exodus 15 is you see a response to what God did in Exodus chapter 14. You see how he opened up the Red Sea, he brought the people of Israel through, and then he pretty much um, defeated the Pharaoh and his army. Well, Israel didn't just say, okay, next point. They didn't just check it off. They responded, and they responded with a song of thanksgiving. And, and look at what they said in Exodus 15, verses 1 and 2. It says... Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. Why? For he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider. He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God. I will exalt him. And Kenny talked about this idea of God revealing himself. He revealed himself as a redeemer by delivering Israel. And you see Israel looking back on that previous act of redemption and singing and celebrating God. That implies that they are thankful. The song implies that they're looking back on what God has done and they're appreciating it. They're ascribing value to it. They're magnifying God and they're celebrating God. That's what it looks like to really be thankful to God. And then we see it in Psalm 18, verses 46 to 48. David expressed thanksgiving to God on the day that God delivered him from all his enemies. And, and, and then actually, if you read Psalm 18, it says all his enemies and Saul. But he says in Psalm 18, verses 46 to 48, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock. Exalted be the God of my salvation. And in verse 47, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you be exalted above the, you exalted above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the men of violence. You see this idea of a response to God's deliverance or a response to God's salvation. That, that's not just, Thanksgiving is not just saying grace. It's celebrating all of God's grace in all of life and magnifying him. And we see that. And, and, the, and even if you look at um, Hannah, Hannah in her prayer in, in, in 1 Samuel 2, we know that she was barren. She wanted a child. Well, God ended up giving her a child, um, and, and she dedicated that child to the Lord. And then she responds with a prayer. She says in 1 Samuel 2, verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Salvation there is God delivering her from, from barrenness. Salvation is not always saving from sins. Sometimes it's just saving from some kind of issue in the Old Testament. She was barren, God intervened. That's what she means when she says salvation. Deliverance always sometimes in the Bible has different contexts. And in this particular context, she's celebrating God for delivering her from, from, from that childlessness. So, so we see that she's thankful. She's not just moving to the next checkpoint. She's acknowledging what God has done in the past, in the present, and it has an effect on her life. An Old Testament scholar, Patrick D. Miller, writes, quote, In these prayers of thanksgiving, we encounter the primary elements of the prayers of those who heard, who God heard and delivered 
Prayers of Praise and Trust, and that's from his book, They Cried to the Lord, The Form and Theology of Biblical Prayer. And John Calvin, he defines thanksgiving in his institutes as the gratitude which ascribes to him, talking about God, the praise of our blessings. And then he, again, he talks about this same subject, and he says, um, thanksgiving is a celebration of God's kindness towards us, ascribing to his liberality every blessing which enters our lot. So we see that this is a lifestyle. Thanksgiving is not just something that you do at a certain part of the day and move on. No, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's something that we constantly want to be doing. We want to be magnifying the Lord, want to be looking at his great acts in the past, and we want to always be looking for what he's doing in the here and now so that we might worship him because that's what it means to be awakened to a holy God, to be aware of what he's done in the past, to, to, to be aware of what he's doing in the present, and to look forward to what he's doing in the future. That's what Thanksgiving encompasses. And then we move to verse 3. In verse 3, Paul begins by saying, we always thank God. That we there is talking about Paul and Timothy. Because if you read the introduction of the letter, it says Paul and Timothy. So he says we always thank God. But the first thing we learn from Paul about prayer is that thanksgiving is a lifestyle. He says that we always thank God. The word translated always means at all times or continually. If we look at Paul's prayers in the New Testament, offering thanksgiving to Paul was almost as natural as him breathing. For example, look at Romans 8, well, not Romans 8, but Romans 1, verses 8 through 11. Look at what he says in Romans 1, verses 8 through 11. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking somehow by God's will that I may succeed in coming, into, coming to you. So you see there, even in the book of Romans, as he's writing to the church at Rome, the first thing he does is he wants to thank God. Before he gets to um, the exposition of what the gospel is and all of that stuff, let me stop and thank God. Because God is doing something. It's not always just problems to be solved. It's a God to be worshipped. He, he, he's always doing something. So let me thank God first before I jump into any other issue. And then we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, I give thanks to my God always. And then if we look in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16, look at what Paul says. You guessed it. I do not cease to give, give thanks for you. Philippians 3, um, 1, verses 3 and 4. I thank my God in all, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, you all making my prayer with joy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Philemon um, 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. So as we have demonstrated, Paul's pattern was to be intentional about identifying God's grace and celebrating God. And he did this in many of his churches. He didn't do it in every single letter. Like for, for uh, the church at Galatia, he jumped straight to the issue. Oh, foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? But G.K. Beale, in his commentary on this passage, he says, quote, Thanksgiving arises out of a constant attitude of prayer. As typical in his other epistles, here, Paul's introductory thanksgiving 
arises from a preceding attitude and activity of prayer. Paul's thanksgiving is not merely a one-time act by Paul, but it is something that arises continually. These other introductory thanksgivings reveal the pattern that Paul first prayerfully meditates on the experience of divine grace in the life of the believer, and then this leads him to thank God for that grace, close quote. And then that takes us to the next part of verse 3. He says, when we pray for you. Notice he said, when we pray for you. So the second thing we learn is Paul had a consistent prayer life. Notice that the text says, when we pray for you. It it, it wasn't a matter of chance for Paul. Paul was going to pray. That's one thing that Paul was going to do. He was going to pray. He says, and, and basically if you notice, he says, when we pray for you, not if. This teaches us that prayer is not occasional, prayer is not conditional, prayer is not seasonal. Paul prayed regularly. And and constant prayer was a vital part of Jewish culture. Some biblical scholars even estimate that Paul prayed at minimum three times a day. That that, that was just a common thing. If if you were a Jewish person, you would pray three times a day. And when he became a Christian, he he didn't get rid of that it just became more defined and more theologically sound because of the gospel. And scripture gives warrant for this type of estimation. Although scripture does not prescribe us to pray three times a day, it does describe Jewish people praying three times a day. So just because we see somebody praying three times a day, God is not saying that you're not spiritual if you don't pray three times a day. What what, what we take from that in application is we need to be constant in our prayer life. I can't stand here and tell you how many times a day to pray. It's probably good to pray more than three times a day if you can. Or sometimes praying once is good. It just depends on the situation and it depends on the heart behind it. So so, so we don't want to be legalistic and tell you, you know, pray three times a day or you're not spiritual. That's that's not the point. The point is, is that Jews prayed a lot. That's the point. And, and then in Psalm 55, 17, we see this idea. Evening and morning and noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. That's praying. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went into his house where he had windows in his upper chamber up toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed, not just pray, and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel prayed a lot. He didn't, he didn't just pray a lot, he gave thanks a lot. So the point here for Christians today, or for us today, is to be consistent and intentional about prayer. The tradition of constant prayer and thanksgiving carries over into the Christian life. Paul surely thought so as it is evident in his teaching. J. Gary Miller, in his book called Calling on the Name of the Lord, A Biblical Theology of Prayer, writes, quote, if any of the New Testament writers can lay claim of being the theologian of prayer, it is the Apostle Paul. Paul talks more about his own prayers, encourages his readers to pray more, and includes more prayer in his letters than anyone else. Paul, more than anyone else, shaped the theology and practice of prayer in the church of the Lord Jesus, as he spearheaded the church planting movement across the Mediterranean. For Paul, the gospel shapes the prayers of the church. So our prayers are not shaped by what Jewish people did, it's shaped by what Christ did. 
We pray because of the finished work of Christ. We pray because God is good. We pray because we know that we need him. We pray because we are people awakened to a holy God. So again, the idea is not to tell you how many times to pray, but the idea is, is that we should be consistent in our prayers. What did, what did Paul teach about prayer? We're going to survey some of the things that Paul taught about prayer. In Romans 12, 12, he instructs us to be constant in prayer. In Ephesians 6, 18, he says, pray in the spirit when? At all times. Philippians 4, 6, don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. So I don't think there's any, any, any way that we can say we don't know what Paul believed about prayer. He believed that prayer should be a lifestyle. And again, Patrick D. Miller, in his book about prayer, summarizes these texts by the following quote. He says, quote, It is out of such teaching and praying as these texts reveal that we began to encounter in the New Testament the sense of prayer as spiritual discipline. The Christian life involves prayer as a part of communion with God that belongs to the regularity, regu regularity and ongoing discipline of life as well as specific moments. So you see that? We're to pray when certain things happen, and we should be praying even before those certain things happen. Praying people don't happen by accident. They happen by discipline. And then D.A. Carson, in his book entitled Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, he writes, quote, Paul's many references to his prayers suggest that he set aside specific times for prayer as apparently Jesus himself did. You can read about that in Luke chapter 5, verse 16. The reason we pray so little is that we do not plan to pray. Wise planning will ensure that we devote ourselves to prayer often, even if for brief periods. It is better to pray often with brevity, brevity than rarely but at length. But the worst option is simply not to pray. And that will be the controlling pattern unless we plan to pray. If we intend to change our habits, we must start here. So we see there that, that that's an application point. If, you, if, if we want to get better at, at prayer, just pray. If we want to be more consistent at prayer, keep, keep praying. That's the only way. God is not going to zap us, and one day we're going to, you know, be praying a lot. That's going to happen by setting aside specific times. And notice, I'm not caught up on how much you pray. I'm just caught up on it, it should be a lifestyle because that's what Scripture teaches. And then we move to the next subject, which is thanksgiving. Since we've covered prayer, we've looked at prayer in the Old Testament, we've looked at Paul's teaching on prayer, but Paul also talked about thanksgiving. And I want to just point out some verses that make it explicit that prayer is not just a lifestyle, also thanksgiving is a lifestyle. In Ephesians 5, 4, he says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So that's really what distinguishes an unbeliever from a believer. An unbeliever is going to find a reason to complain. A believer, since, he, since a believer is awakened to a holy God, we're going to find a reason to celebrate God. We're going to see the good in situations. Like we're not going to be naive people and just, you know, ignore things in the world, but we're going to have a thankful outlook on life. And that's what Paul is talking about there in Ephesians 5, 4. He wants Christians to distinguish themselves by how, they, how they're thankful, how, how they thank God for things in life. And then Ephesians 5, 20, he says, 
giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Philippians 4, 6, we just read this verse, but he mentions it again. He says, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. God is not a genie in a bottle. Lord, thank you for what you've done before. Based on what you've done before, Lord, can, can, can you meet this need? So, so we're not just going to God constantly just asking. We're thankful because God is doing stuff. Even as we're asking, asking him for stuff, he, he's blessing us and doing things in our lives, even, at, even as we're making requests to him. That's how good he is. And then in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he says, abounding in thanksgiving. In Colossians 3.17, he says, giving thanks to God the Father through him, talking about Christ. Colossians 4.2, being watchful with it in prayer with thanksgiving. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he says, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? This is the will of God and Jesus Christ for you. So that's God's will. It's God's will that we're constantly thanking him. Scripture tells us that if we want to be people that are awakened to a holy God, we're always looking to God with our hands lifted, praising him for what he's already done. God might not do everything we want him to do, but he has done something, and we can praise him. And G.K. Bill, again, comments on prayer and thanksgiving, and he writes, Christians are to have a continual mindset of prayer and thanksgiving. Spiritual impoverishment comes when believers do not prayerfully contemplate the experience of God's grace in their lives. And such impoverishment results in an unthankful perspective. And, and that is a very sobering reality, even for me personally. It pushes me to want to think, what is God doing? Not what I wish God would do. For every complaint, there's a reason to celebrate God. It just depends on whether we're being intentional about looking for those things. And then we move to verses 4 through 8. And here, Paul says, since we heard. And in the outline, I just left that heading of since we heard, because the since we heard explains the reason why he's praying and giving thanks. And I'm pretty much going to do an exposition on the reasons why he's giving thanks. There are always tangible reasons to thank God. And the things that he's going, Paul is going to celebrate God for and thank God for are the results of the gospel, the hearing of the gospel, and the minister of the gospel. Let us look to verses 4 through 5, the, the results of the gospel. Paul says in verse 4, Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, a lot of times we, we read Paul, his thanksgivings and his introductions, and we say, oh, that's not the important stuff. Um, Paul doesn't get to the important stuff until after chapter 2 or until um, after the greeting. But there's a lot of theology in the beginning when Paul first writes. Because what Paul does is usually he's going to thank God for the very thing he's going to ask God to keep doing. And then he's going to teach people how to maintain what God is doing through what he teaches them in the next chapters. So, so, so if, if you look at this prayer very closely, if you look at 3 through 8, Paul is thanking God for bringing the gospel and for what he's doing in their lives. And then if you look at verses 9 to 14, he's praying that God keep doing it. Because the mark of a believer is not the start, it's the, it's the perseverance all the way to the end. So even though God might be doing something good, we need God to continue 
to do those things, which he will. If he started it, he who began a good work will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul prays that not because they can lose their salvation, but because God has started the work, and that work must be completed. But when we look at faith here, um, it's important that Paul point out that God is the reason for their faith because Colossae was considered what we call a cosmopolitan location. People would come in and out of that location. They would bring different worldviews. They would bring different cultures. And then what would happen was all those different worldviews and all those different cultures, they would try to do what's called syncretism. They'll try to add something to Christianity that's not Christianity and say that it's Christianity. But when you look at um, the Colossian church, their faith was distinct from the world, just like our faith is distinct from the world. If you got to add something to it, it's not true. What God has revealed is in the scriptures. We don't need to go outside the scriptures to add something to our faith. What God said is what he said. What he meant is what he meant. And what we need, he gave us. So, so, so we don't need to go outside of the faith to grow in the faith. But you see that um, these people were considered um, a cosmopolitan location, meaning that there was a mixture of many cultures, philosophies, religions present in that location. Religious pluralism and religious syncretism were very influential or were at least beginning to be influential in Colossae. And Paul doesn't take this fact for granted. So when Paul says he celebrates God for their faith, the reason why he's celebrating God for their faith is because in the midst of all of that, they came to believe in the gospel. That's not man being smarter than everybody else. That's God being more powerful than everybody else. Amen. None of us come to faith because we're smart. Because if that was the case, I wouldn't be standing here. We, we come to faith by God's grace, by God's mercy, by his sovereign act. And Paul recognizes that salvation is of the Lord. We come to faith based on God's work, not, not, not by how much we can, we can conjure up or how much we can figure out. Because the Colossians, if, if they were stuck in that culture with all those different ideas, they would have probably caved to those different ideas. But because their faith is from God and God has worked, Paul has reason to worship God. And we even see it in the book of Colossians. Look, look at chapter 1, verse 12. Look at what he says in verse 12. He's still on the subject of thanksgiving, and he's praying that they would be thankful to God the Father. Why in the world would they be thankful to God the Father? Look at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father, why? Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul, what are you talking about? All right, all right, I'll make it more clear. Verse 13. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How did they get in Christ? God. And if we need to make it even more clear, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Paul explicitly states, it is because of God that you are in Christ who became for us righteousness, wisdom, sanctification, and redemption. We're not in Christ because we're smart. We're in Christ because God is sovereign. And that's why he, he thanks God for their faith. He recognizes that God is sovereign in bringing people to a saving knowledge of the truth. And then even in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 through 6, he says, God has caused the light to shine in our hearts, and God has given to us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The scales come off our eyes because God removed them. And then we move to the next point. He talks about love. Since God is responsible for causing the Colossians to believe, their faith produces a brotherly love. You ever heard somebody say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church? That's nonsense. Don't listen to that. 
How can, imagine somebody saying, Jaquan, I love you, but I can't stand Ariel. We got a problem. <laughs> if, if, God has given us, if God has given us biblical faith and it's true faith, we're going to love our brothers. We're going to love the brethren. And I'll shut up and I'll just let Scripture speak on this issue. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, you will know who's my disciples. Why? Because they're going to love one another. In first, all through 1 John, John gives all these distinguishing marks of how you know somebody is a believer and an unbeliever. He says, if you hate the brethren, you're not converted. That's what he says. He says it multiple times in the book of 1 John. And you can look in, if, if you're writing it down, you can look in 1 John 2.10. You can look in 1 John 3.10. You can look in 1 John 3.14, 1 John 4.20, and Colossians 3.14. Paul is thankful to God for what the gospel produces because the gospel changes our hearts. The gospel causes us to forgive. The gospel causes us to walk in unity and be concerned about our fellow brothers and to love Christ's church. So, so that's why he thanks God for um, their faith and their love. And then he moves to their hope. Verse 5. Hope here is used to, to refer to the object of the believer's hope which is basically the expectation that the believers will have a future bodily resurrection at, at the return of Christ. The way that this word hope is used is the same way that it's used in Titus 2.13, where it says, um, waiting for the blessed hope, the coming and appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A lot of people say, oh, Christians just believe pie in the sky. No, we have historical reason to believe what we believe. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said the gospel is based on historical fact. We're not just running around here hoping that what we believe is true. We know that what we believe is true. And, we, and the reason why we believe that, that, that there's going to be a resurrection is because there was an incarnation. If he came one time in history, I got reason to believe he's going to come again. And if he rose from the dead, I have reason to believe that when I, that when I die one day, he's going to raise me from the dead because the Bible calls him the first fruits of the resurrection. So, so when we're hoping, we're, we're not just closing our eyes hoping that what we believe is true. That's not faith. Faith is based on objective truth and objective reality that actually happened in history because a lot of people will say faith is believing something that might not be true. No, 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 no. That's not Christianity. God doesn't call us, call us to believe what's not true. We have an objective basis to believe what we believe. And then Paul, Paul thanks God for the hope that the Colossians have because the people around them, they had all kind of hope. They had all kind of the, uh, theories and um, hoping in this and hoping in that. But Paul thanks God that they got their hope from God because everybody don't get their hope from God. Some people hope, hope, hope for some stuff that's just utter nonsense. But in the Bible, we have reason to hope because God is at work, because God is the author of our hope. He's the author of our love, and he's the author of our faith. And then another reason why Paul says that Paul mentions hope is because the Colossians' hope is not found in, in, in the false religions or the philosophies, but they have certainty in the here and now because they are participating in resurrection life in the here and now because of their spiritual transformation. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. He says in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also 
notice, you also were what? Raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. That's death resurrection language. You were dead. Now you're alive. Or even if you go to the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the Bible says that God made us alive with Christ, raised us up with Christ, and seated, seated us with Christ in heavenly places. So, so, so the resurrection is not merely a theoretical hope. It is a reality in the here and now. And, and, and the basis that we have that the resurrection is true is that the, the, the risen Christ is continuously changing people's hearts. There's a spiritual transformation that takes place and then when Christ returns, you'll, you'll see the physical transformation at the second coming, that, that, that resurrection of our body. And then if you look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Some translations say since, some say if, but that, that's the idea. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Where is he? Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, verse 4, now notice, there's a spiritual reality here, and then in verse 4, there's an actual historical expectation. So, so, so you have this spiritual, spiritual consequence of the resurrection where we're seated with Christ in a spiritual sense. We're, we're to think based on where Christ is. Um, he has caused the light to shine in our eyes. He's regenerated us. We've been spiritually risen from the dead. But then when you look at verse 4, it says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. That's talking about the second coming. That hasn't happened yet. That's our hope. But, but, but we're not just hoping in something that um, has no basis in our lives now. That resurrection of the dead is, is really the basis of our transformation. If Christ was never raised from the dead, there would be no regeneration. There would be no outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There would be no church. So we're not just believing that simply because um, it's a theory or whatever. It, it is a concrete reality as we have seen. And Paul uses that all through his theology. All things that he says to different churches, he always applies this death, resurrection, even ascension language. And then Paul moves on. He, thank, he thanks God for their faith. He thanks God for their love. He thanks God for their hope. And now he thanks God. Why? Because they hear the gospel. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Because of the hope laid up for you, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So you see the fruit of the gospel. Well, how did, how did that happen? Because they heard the gospel. Paul thanks God that the Colossians heard the gospel. Paul refers to the gospel as the word of truth. And when he says heard the gospel, it's not merely they just had ears and heard what, what, what was preached. No, 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 no. They heard it and they understood it. They heard it and they knew what the ramifications were for them. They heard it and knew God, God is talking to me. This is about me. Because sometimes you can preach the gospel to somebody, they're going to point to somebody else. But when God is at work, when the gospel hits you, you're going to say, oh, that's me. That's talking about me. And you're going to respond because God is at work. So that's what he means when he says heard. Heard is not just 
you heard a sound. It's not in the general sense. It's in a more specific sense, in the sense of conversion, in the sense of the effectual call of the gospel is what theologians call it. It's that effectual call. And then Paul refers to the gospel as the word of truth. Why does he do that? He does that to distinguish the gospel from all other philosophies and religions that were, that were present at Colossae. We've got to do that today. Paul says there are many gospels. You've got the prosperity gospel. You've got the liberal gospel. You've got all types of gospels out there. But there's only one biblical gospel. So that's why he says the word of truth. And then he says, he says this, the word of truth. What, what, what that tells us is, is that it speaks to the quality and the authoritative nature of the gospel. What Paul is talking about is the gospel that saves, the gospel that redeems, the gospel that presents the biblical Christ, the biblical God. That's what he's talking about. It has authority. All gospels do not have authority because all gospels are not from God. And then Paul is thankful that the Colossians, what the Colossians heard was indeed the word of truth. And that word of truth was preached at Colossae as well as um, throughout the known Gentile world. So when he says bearing fruit and increasing, that gospel didn't just stop there. That gospel went all through the Roman Empire, all through the Mediterranean world, and, and the gospel just really took root. But the Colossians heard it. They didn't just hear it. They understood it. And, and the effectual call um, converted them, that, that effectual call of God. And then the gospel was bearing fruit and spreading. So they heard, remember the parable um, of the soils. Three of the soils were bad. One of them were good. So that means every, most people didn't hear it, but you had one group, it took root in their heart. So that's what it means really to hear the gospel. And that's only, that's only um, occurring through the effectual call of God, that supernatural work of God in the heart of a believer. And then lastly, Paul thanks God for the minister of the gospel. And if you'll notice, Paul is kind of working backwards, if you notice what he's doing. He doesn't start out with the minister. He ends with the minister. So, so he's going in kind of, kind of a reverse order. Usually it's the minister, the hearing, then the fruit. Paul goes the fruit, the hearing, then the minister. So he reverses the order. Why does he do that? Well, Paul thinks Epaphras. He mentions Epaphras. Look at verse 7. Just as you learned it, from Epaphras, our brother. So he thanks God for Epaphras and sees him as God's instrument. God uses means to accomplish his ends. Just because God is sovereign doesn't mean we don't have to do anything. God is sovereign, and he uses people as a result of his, his sovereignty. And, he, and particularly, he uses ministers and preachers to deliver the message of the gospel. But Epaphras was a very, very, very gifted, he, he had to be a gifted man, a man who God used very, very mightily. Because if you look at the text, Paul is mention, mentioning Epaphras in all different types of ways. Um, in one text, he says that he's, he's a missionary. He bought the gospel um, to that region. He's an evangelist. He preached the gospel to that region. He's a pastor. He discipled those people and walked with them day to day as a shepherd in that local church. So we need to understand that the gospel cannot go forward without people. And ultimately, um, we want to be grateful to people, but ultimately we want to be thankful to God because it's God who's sending people. It's God who's gifting people. It's God who's calling people. That's ultimately a work of God. And Paul understands this because he taught it. In Romans 10, 14, and 15, he says, how can they go unless they're sent? 
How can they hear unless they have a preacher? Blessed are the feet of, of, of the one who, who, who brings the good news. That's when God sends out those missionaries. He, he, he sends out means to accomplish his ends for his own glory. So preachers are necessary. And then we see in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 and 21, he says that, Paul says that I wasn't trying to lay on a foundation that somebody else already built on. That teaches the idea that missionaries are needed to take the gospel to unreached places. So Paul wasn't just concerned with where there were already churches. He wanted to edify churches, but he also wanted to plant new churches in unreached uh, people groups. And then we see in Ephesians 4, verses 10 to 16, where he talks about God raises up th that, that shepherd teacher and, and, and all of those different offices. He, he raises the, those men up so that they can teach the church. So, so, so Paul is thanking God that, that, that he uses people. He uses ministers. God doesn't just convert people, just, they're just looking at the trees and one day they get converted. No, they were either confronted with a man preaching through a TV, a missionary bringing the gospel to them, some kind of radio program or something. Nonetheless, God is using means and God is using people. But nonetheless, Epaphras was a gift to Paul and to the Colossians. And Paul was thankful to God for him and his ministry. And in conclusion, the last thing I want, I want to bring out is that, that third truth that Paul teaches and the third thing we learn from this prayer is that Christians always have a reason to offer thanksgiving to God. I know I'm a broken record, but I can't overstate that point. That, that's the point I want to conclude with. Christians always have reason to thank God. No matter what trials we may face, no matter what difficulties might be going on in our lives when we leave here, no matter what threats may arise against the church or us personally, like Paul, we always have reason to thank God for his saving grace in our lives and in the lives of other people. And I want to close by reading for, um, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And it, and it reads, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you're a Christian, there, there's your thankfulness right there. There's your celebration right there. There's your reason to go before the throne of grace, lift your hands before God and say, Lord, thank you. Certain things might not be going right in my life, but Lord, I know I'm right with you. I know that my sins are forgiven. I know that I have a certain resurrection hope. And that doesn't mean we're ignoring the realities and, and, and all the confusion that comes with living everyday life. But what it means is in an ultimate sense, we can all be thankful to God we, because we are awakened to God and we're reconciled to God. But at this time, um, I'm going to pray for us and close us out. Father, we come before you, Lord, thanking you that um, you always give us reasons to be thankful, Lord. You are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. And I pray, Father, that you would just continue to work in our hearts, Lord, and continue to help us to grow to be people that are more thankful, more prayerful, and more desirous to glorify you, Lord. And as we leave out and we get ready to go back into our lives, I pray, Lord, that um, you would help us to take this truth with us and help us, Lord, to be resolved to apply it. And as always, we thank you, we love you, and we honor you. And we ask these things humbly in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.